was not caught, though many tried. I'll live among you, well disguised. Agent Hamilton, something occurred to me. Last season, I believe we got a glimpse, although we didn't know it, of the Spaghetti Man. I'm wondering if maybe in this fourth episode we might see him again or see our main uh, bad guy, if you will. As for your previous point about the Spaghetti Man and uh, this season's villain, here's hoping we get something to unify the detectives against one main thing. So maybe their personal conflicts are either resolved or cut down a bit and they can focus on the case at hand. I don't know. I'm certainly hoping that we get something like that this episode to kind of, you know, heat things up or really kick things into high gear because we're halfway through the season now. This is not going as well as I'd hoped. This is Special Agent Hamilton reporting into Desk Sergeant Moselak. Good evening. Um, I wanted to follow up on the end of last week's episode with a few things that I think really articulate why I'm so upset by this season of True Detective. Uh, last episode, uh, looking at the four classic conflicts. Last episode, or last season, we had uh, person versus society, or person versus nature, if you will, because, you know, reach out to darkness, darkness touches you back, it's about nature, it's about human nature in that way, and I think it was fascinating that we were on our detective's side the entire time, and I really enjoyed that, being along with them on the ride. This season, it is person versus self, times four, really. We don't get much about... I mean, we do get a lot about Casper, but we do not get enough of the we are on the detective side. There is too much happening between them. The conflict between Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson last season was enough to keep us glued to them and enough to keep them glued to each other. They fell out for a few years. They got back together in 2012 to solve the case. But this season, the conflicts between the detectives are not paying off in the same way that last season's did. And I guess we could owe that to the great actors from last season and the, as we've talked about, subpar acting this season. But I really, really wish that this season were better in that respect. What do you think? Welcome back to the True Detective Tapes. We are covering Season 2, Episode 4 of HBO's True Detective with the title, Down Will Come. Uh, many characters came down at the end of this episode. Hmm. Uh, joining me to talk about this episode is the wonderful Sergeant uh, Phil Moselak. How's it going? I'm doing well. I feel like I'm punching a clock. Agreed. I feel like, uh, you know, the nine to five, like, in and out. Oh, God, this is not something I want to be watching right now, but we're here. We're going to be covering it. We're going to break it down. We're going to talk about why we don't like it. I think we need to. I think that there's some, some things that are happening, and we're now at episode four. We're halfway through the season. And... I don't feel like I've gained... I have no idea who the bad guy is. Well, in season one, that was the same case. We didn't know who the bad guy was, but at least we had some sense of what they were doing and why. Last season, it was about a really creepy woman murderer, child molester person. But this season, it's all about something to do with money. And we get the multiple aspects. We get Frank's very like high-level, very money-driven 
point of view versus the detectives uh, down in the streets, uh, very nitty gritty, talking to people who are blowing things up and shooting people. We get those perspectives. I don't see how both of them come together. We get a few hints at the end of this episode, but I'm honestly not on board with where this villain mastermind person is going. But what do you say we jump in with the very beginning where, um, uh, first of all, after the very first shot of Volcoro and uh, Rachel McAdams' character getting the car analyzed, we get <laughs> what I think was the worst, most overacted scene of the season so far, where uh, Vince Vaughn is the angriest about avocados I've seen, except for somebody in like a Chipotle line where they have to pay extra for guacamole and they don't know it. This is the angriest I've seen Vince Vaughn about avocados. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there were a, in this scene, especially when he's talking to his uh, wife, mm-hmm. girlfriend. Um, see, that's for that to be unclear, I think, is a problem as well. Um, and but like, I felt like I was watching um, maybe something kind of close to the watch where mm-hmm. he was doing his hyper, like, super animated, pissed guy, but. Like, it just comes off funny. And I know it's not supposed to be, but, like, you know, that's what he brings to the table is that um, angry, funny guy. He really does, and that's a problem. If they're First of all, True Detective is supposed to be a heavy show. Uh, I have a note about this later, but I really do believe that this is not worthy of, like, the True Detective moniker based on season one. Uh, first of all... The dialogue that they have where they talk about adoption and alternatives to IVF, where they say maybe we've been doing going about this wrong, uh, Vince Vaughn says, I won't do someone else's time. I won't take on somebody else's grief. That's a copy-paste from uh, season one. Matthew McConaughey has a very similar rant about these similar themes. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even see that angle. He, he has something along the lines of like, I can't imagine the narcissism involved in bringing another soul into this putrid world or something like that. But it's the same, like, it's almost copy-paste from season one. <sighs> so this one scene is the I feel like this uh, entire season so far comes down to this one scene where they spend the opening few minutes in this uh, really weird dialogue scene where uh, they talk about their marriage and their problems with having children. And I'm realizing I just do not care. I believe that them focusing on this so much is trying to give uh, Frank's character more of a um, human angle or something, or at least showing something to do with um, uh, his wife and how he interacts with her and adds another facet to his personality. But I honestly believe that I, I do not care about this plot line anymore at all. Well, and it seems like if, if they're supposed to be showing stakes, because we kind of see, um, well, you know, go, going a little bit further, Frank almost through the entire episode is going out and reaching out um, to old um, ownerships and old apartment complex um, and getting investors for new opportunities mm-hmm. and then running, running coke and all kinds of drugs outside the Lux, which he's taken over. Exactly. No, he's uh, that's his arc for this entire episode is trying to figure out uh, where he can make up for lost money after all the millions of dollars he lost with Casper's death. He's going around to a bunch of different places and trying to get those investors. And his entire arc this whole season has been many scenes like this where 
every single scene just plods along and shows another similar interaction. Uh, earlier, it was, where's my money? Now it's, how can I get more money? Yeah. And the one person that I kind of actually really dug this episode was Paul. Oh, definitely. Um, now, again, this didn't make sense to me that Paul wakes up in <clears throat> his friend's place and obviously um, some gay time was going on. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was it was very happy. And um, except uh, Paul didn't seem to very, be very happy about it. But we when we last left him, he was walking away from that guy. Mm hmm. And then to it really kind of it was just disjunctive. It was like, wait a minute. The last time I saw him, he was walking away, looking furious, and now he ends up in his bed and you know, kind of hung over or whatever. I mean, he was really a mess. And then he gets um, hooked up with, against the uh, uh, the reporters, and I'm like, what is this about? It was very jarring and not in the way that you'd expect from a show like True Detective. So he wakes up, and I, I like you, I thought I'd missed something. And I do like the fact that a few lines into the scene, he goes, you don't remember, do you? What the heck happened last night? And it turns out, yeah, that's exactly what happened. They, um, uh, Paul gave in to his desires that he's been trying to repress this entire time. And as we'll see later, he really goes to some drastic measures to try to, um, uh, to try to repress his, uh, homosexual side. Uh, you know, last episode he says, I keep thinking about the village and that's what, uh, he gets pissed off about and something about the village and something about, um, something, uh, overseas that, it ended up triggering something in him, I guess, in his um, uh, inebriated state. We can only assume he was uh, drinking a lot or uh, something along those lines to get him in this place. But afterwards, he's – like the rug is pulled completely out from underneath him. Yeah. I, I mean it was, it was just – it was really odd. Um, but he's – you know, he's gotten his motorcycle – motorcycle stolen. <laughs> it's a hard word and, to say. Don't worry. Right. but. <laughs> But wait a minute, when did this happen, and is it a lie, is it the truth? And he ends up taking a taxi to his, quote, hotel, and there's a bunch of reporters there. Now, I can only assume – now, again, I am reading way into it mm -hmm. at this point, but I think I'm right. It has something to do with the um, case coming to trial between um, – the the girl that he was accused of sleeping with um, on a routine traffic stop. No, exactly. That's what I thought, too, because why else would he have that kind of notoriety for the freaking paparazzi to come and show up and uh, harass him like that? And we can only assume, like, we didn't know who that actress was. I guess she was some, uh, I guess, fairly popular actress or maybe a smaller uh, B-list actress that they didn't really, like, enough for the paparazzi to come and harass the cop involved, but not enough for this to be like major, major headlines. I, I don't know, but I guess I think you're right. That is why that they were all there. Yeah, I, I'm, I, and then he, you know, banks off and eventually makes a call to Ray. Now that's, we're going a little bit 
front and backwards on this mm-hmm. one because Ray and Annie are doing a little bit of uh, work. Right, right. No, let's get to um, uh, Ray's scene later with uh, Paul later. And then, yeah, let's talk about um, uh, Ray's uh, work with uh, the other detectives. Now, they're trying to figure out uh, the consequences of the car. Uh, we see them in the shop where they're looking for prints, I guess, getting things analyzed, because the car's in surprisingly good condition for being blown up like that. Yeah. I was, uh, I was a little surprised looking at it. I thought, I didn't think the car would be anything that they'd be able to look at after the fire last episode, but it turns out, hey, you can bring it into the shop and it'll just be a little bit charred. It still had a roof, right? That was, uh, that was a little ridiculous. Yeah, there's always latent prints on everything. That's true. That makes sense. Now, um, the most interesting thing to me about this scene was that they talk about the implications of the investigation and who may or may not go to jail. Ray has lines about uh, how this is about stopping Vinci from doing the same thing that's done for a century and how the city is so corrupt that this one investigation into the mayor and the death of a uh, fairly popular businessman, um, that's not going to change things. And he implies that Somebody around them is going to go to jail at the end of this uh, if push comes to shove and they don't want to change things and just sweep it under the rug. But they still need someone to um, – something to show for this massive investigation. And uh, Ray implies that it's going to be Rachel McAdams possibly being uh, arrested. Yeah, like we're going to – the state is going to shake down and – Eventually, someone in inside of this is going to be, you know, pushed as the scapegoat, mm-hmm. which seems oddball to me because it's like here we have the, these three different positions, and one of them is going to take the fall. But but again, who's controlling all the bells and whistles? Is it the mayor of Vinci? It seems like he's got some sort of background that they stumble upon. Right, right. There's a scene later where they imply that uh, the mayor is muddling with this investigation and their lives even more than they possibly uh, imagined earlier. But you're right. The people behind this and the people that want to keep Vinci corrupt and keep it going the way it's been for years, these are the people that are going to be you know, showing for it. And I, it does not feel like true detective for me to just have it say this is a thing that's happening and not change it. I feel like they're being like way too complacent in this. They're not fighting to change things. As we'll see at the end of the episode, a whole bunch of horrible stuff has happened, and they know that something is going to go down there, but they there's nothing that they can do to save themselves, which is infuriating to me because I don't feel like it's going to be... It, it does not feel like True Detective for these people to... Um, to not have another option for them, another way out. Uh, maybe that'll come in the last half of the season, but as of right now, it doesn't. It, things are looking very grim for everyone involved. Yeah, and Ray and Annie are um, on a stakeout in front of the mayor's place, and they actually end up talking to um, the mayor's daughter, the one who shut the door on him before. I'm so glad she finally has something to do. Like, I'm, I'm glad I was able to recognize her too, because she was on screen for what, 30 seconds at the end of last, or in the middle of last episode. Yeah. It was like, Oh, I'd even call it four. <laughs> and, 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 and then we find out that, you know, her mom had some sort of really rough schizophrenia mm-hmm. and a doctor who was not very good. Um, by the name of 
Piddler. Yeah, Piddler. Mm -hmm. There was something there that was like, um, this Piddler person ended up in the same circle as Rachel McAdams' father and the uh, Rick Springfield doctor they talked to a few episodes back. Yeah, and Chisani, he is the mayor. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, um, Annie's father says the Chisani Lodge. Like, you know, it's kind of like this, like, offshoot. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? I mean, were we the Zemzems now? I, 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 I couldn't get this. <laughs> and, um, I, and I don't mean to be poke fun of it. I just can't figure how this is all going to play out um, in four more episodes. I think that's the frustrating part. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we talked about this a lot, how things were moving really fast. Uh, in the first few episodes, and we just had to keep checking in with each characters and have them trudge along their storyline. A lot of stuff happened, but we've seen the show move fast enough to get to this point in four episodes, at least in terms of the characters. It's the worst midpoint between moving too fast with these characters and their developments and not feeling like they've come far enough. Season one was so economical in the way that it moved the characters along with various points of their lives. It took place over the course of what, 20 years, 15 years, something ridiculous like that. And it still felt like things moved fast enough despite being able to take their time to show really great small moments. And they're not doing that at all with season two. There was one particular moment, um, and I believe it's when we have our guitar girl and Ray and Frank, but I don't want to get there yet mm -hmm. because there's somebody I want to bring up and that I, I've been eyeballing. And something has really changed. You know, Paul has a partner, that, you know, oafish old old detective mm -hmm. um, that's been – and we didn't even bring this up last episode and it only came – and it just started – I started watching him. I mean the guy's just – I mean he exudes I'm, I'm dirty. And he took pictures of Paul when he was walking away from – you know the guy at the Lux. Really? He was in the bushes. I yeah, didn't he was in the bushes. I, well, it just occur occurred to me later. And I was like, ah, it was one of those things I wanted to bring up. But I, you know, it, there were so many little things happening. It's like, if I'm supposed to pick up on that, and that's supposed to be a big deal, you got to make it a little bit more of a big deal, or not put it right in this other scene. Exactly. And so, you know, this guy seems to be as corrupt as they get, or somehow he is maybe the, a really a good guy in all this. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, we, he, he's gonna, he's gonna, um, get a canoe shot, uh, a little <laughs> later on the episode. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what else have we got? We have, um, do we want to uh, talk? Do we do green and black auras? Now, again, I, I'm totally baffled on this. I did some research, I did a very quick Google, and um, I came to the conclusion that, um, scrolling through my notes. I, sw I swear we're in like an <laughs> augmented reality game. Yeah, exactly. I, where I have to do all the work. I, that's exactly what I talked about in the tape I just sent you, the way that they um, make us do all of the work. And it's, I, I talked about um, how it's, uh, person versus self, but it almost feels like person versus audience. <laughs> <laughs> they hate us. Yeah, they hate us. It's not, 
intriguing like it was last season. It is infuriating to put these pieces together and try to figure out this whole story. Like, we got a lot of feedback on Twitter on tiny, tiny things we missed. So, uh, Chuck underscore late talked about how the, they went to the movie set because that's where the car was registered because, uh, it, it wasn't because of tax credits. It wasn't about the, um, you know, California state tax breaks or anything like that. It was about where the car was registered. And I remember last season when the first few episodes came out, I was hooked immediately and I would go back and rewatch things. It took me three or four viewings to figure out how, uh, Dora Lang and the other girl who was murdered were related. Turns out they just decided to investigate this other person uh, midway through the investigation of Dora Lang, and that's fine. And once you get there, you move on. That's great. I feel like every single tiny little puzzle piece of this season of True Detective is something both vital and annoying. Like the story that they've created for us is not something that we want to enjoy. Yeah. It's, 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 it's tough. And I, and I hate to, to just beat it to death, but it's, it's left me feeling extremely empty. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of green and black, I did a very quick Google and it looks like green is growth, balance and change to paraphrase the website I found. And black is negative and like a psychic vampire energy sucking style, uh, person. So those Two things don't really clash. They they really clash. I I don't know what to think of that. Yeah, and apparently, uh, Ani's uh, father can see that it, it's beyond big. Mm -hmm. It's it's huge. In fact, well, it's not the size of your aura. It's how you use it, and it doesn't look like he's using it very well. Well, he is off the sauce. <laughs> That's true. We'll get to that a little bit later. But I do think that. Hey, if his if his aura is green and he's gonna grow and change a little bit, then maybe uh, curbing his alcoholism is, to, is a step in that direction. He also visits his kid for a little bit to try to instill in him like a little seed of appreciation that hopefully over time will grow. He gives him the kid's grandfather, so Ray's father's uh, police badge, and that's a little tiny seed of uh, some kind of respect and appreciation that's gonna grow over time. Hopefully, at least in. Uh, in Ray's eyes. You're right. It's, uh, I, I don't know what to make of his arc, but I'm hoping that at least we can start to see some change that goes in line with the green aura that we see. Yeah. And Ani and Sis get together. Yeah. So what did you think of this scene? Okay. Well, it would seem to me that what we saw her doing when she was looking at the internet and looking at different porn sites or strip sites or whatever it was, mm -hmm. webcam sites, is that I guess she was looking into, you know, these quote unquote companies or the LLCs or whatever they are. Yeah. And so she kind of gives her a word of warning, then talks about, you know, mom and how we remember mom. Yeah. They, um, they talk about how the moments that you don't really remember they remember you. They stare back at you. And I thought that was a really cool True Detective-esque line. It almost feels hard-boiled, but, like, at least has something to say. And that was what True Detective Season 1 did best. They have, like, a lot of really great little moments that are like, oh, wow, that's profound. It's one single murder, but it really is profoundly important in the way that these detectives approach it. And that was this was the first time this season I've really felt that, when they say something like, uh, you don't remember these memories, but they remember you and they stare back at you. I thought that was a really good moment of like, huh, 
okay, that's a slightly philosophical yet relatable sentiment that season one did very well. Yeah, and then we find out where where the knife came from. It was her mother's. Mm-hmm. No, there <laughs> we we don't see much of her knives, but there's a scene later where I was like, use a knife, use a knife, use a knife, and she takes out her knife. I'm like, okay, that that makes sense. We can kind of start to read these characters, which is cool. Yeah, we don't want we don't want we don't want to blow it because what we're what we're what we're creeping up on mm-hmm. is very exciting, <laughs> but we don't. If we if we say it now, then we're just going to go downhill. Right. There's a there's a few more things I want to talk about in this scene with her sister. Where, um, first of all, the very first shot that's a long extended close up of a creepy doll. I thought that worked really well. The way that um, the true detective can really pull the rug out from underneath you and subvert your um, excitement and your expectations for a show of this caliber by having creepy, weird images. And they've been doing that all along. In season one, it was all really great aerial shots of the bayou. And then this season, it's all really weird, cold, industrial shots of uh, Vinci and all the factories that surround it. In this instance, there's a really great close-up of a creepy doll with big black eyes and a weird face. And it turns out that's something that her mother really took pride in, uh, her woodwork. Um, really quick shout out. It reminded me of the aesthetics of this uh, really brilliantly creepy iOS game called Year Walk. It reminded me a lot of the weird creepiness of that quick little game in one single shot. So kudos to True Detective for doing something visual and impactful. But again, the script is not there. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's interesting is to shoot in that way is to go, you know, and going close up rather than this establishing shot. Because we had no idea where we were. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't even know who she was talking to for a while. Then we see her like, oh, great. There we go. But it was a little tough to figure out at first. I was like, well, I'm at, where's your purple hair? You know, it, <laughs> you know, there's, you know, it's just like those little things. It's like you can't show her to me episode one. And then I, now the next time I see her is episode four. It makes it a little bit tough. Yeah. Her purple hair is right next to a detective boyfriend's mustache. <laughs> it's um it's one of those things where you try to figure out who these people are and again the show is making us do work that we don't want to do that's the difference between season one and season two the biggest one in my eyes is that season one people were really like willing to delve into the weird literature and figure out what the yellow king of carcosa meant and here we're i mean it's a microcosm of this it's a hair color but we get a lot more of these moments where we have to piece together things that we shouldn't have to piece together I agree. What else? Uh, we have we're, we're, we we go and look for soil samples in Fresno. <laughs> uh, that this was a good moment for me. So they follow these soil samples because um, they had analyses of them in Casper's house, if I'm remembering correctly. No, it was when um, at Mayor Chisani's house. Oh, okay. I knew it was one of their houses, but they go to um, this place where they end up finding out uh, these big lots of contaminated soil that can't be used for farming because of lead or mercury or things like that. But what's really great for me is that this is the, that was the opening shot of this season was the uh, really big long close up of a whole bunch of these uh, soil markers with uh, chicken scratch written on them. I thought it was really great to finally get that circle closed. what do you think of that? What was curious to me is when they were looking at the map and they're looking at those three areas mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, does this have something to do with that railroad or, you know, is it like they're con- condemning property in some way to, you know, 
go ahead and get it cheap? I don't know. And we know that Frank was involved in the land. Is this the same land? They mention when um, Frank is trying to sell his wife's ex-boyfriend on the bar. He mentions something about owning land, too. And I think this, this is that land. I think this is some weird package deal he's trying to throw in there. Because the scenes are back-to-back. So the way that they uh, show these bits of land that somehow related to Casper and Frank, it's probably uh, related to Frank in that he owns it for something corrupt to do with this uh, train line he's trying to build. Sounds like it. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, I really like finally having the opening shot of this uh, of this season have some meaning for us because the last the opening shot of season 1 was something that led right into the meat of the show was that there was a sugar cane burning and that's where they find the girl. We didn't have to think about that that much. It was just a thing that was there and then boom, it's resolved. Um here at least we have something that's like okay, we get the payoff 4 episodes in. Who knows? I'm not sure. Um I do think that um <laughs> when Colin Farrell pulls up and he uh, gets out and says, where, where, where is this? What are we? Uh, he says, oh, this is where the bodies are buried. Like, oh, jump into conclusions, I see. <laughs> right. That's, you know, that's, that's how you are. And then the EPA comes out behind you. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they pull up a map and look at a few other ones. Uh, the other ones that they were circled, were they at one of those three areas? And they were just like, okay, these are the other areas that are also contaminated? Or were they all owned by Frank at one point? What was the story there? I, well, I know when... When he was circling them, he was showing like this one was cadmium, this one was mercury, and this one was I, arsenic. I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah. But but it was just I, – I would love to say, okay, if I could overlay another map, my true detective, you know, detective kit that has all the maps, <laughs> maybe if I took a screenshot of that, then I can overlap it with something that Frank has. But, I, you know, again, it, it was one of those things I don't, I don't know where I am. And now we're talking about Fresno. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Hello, kids. Pull out your uh, true detective detecting kits. Philip Moselock needs your help. You know, little over nanny kind of thing. But no, you're right. Exactly. I wish <laughs> I wish there was something there where we were able to piece things together a bit more, or at least have more information about why things were there. But this is also this is another thing that's kind of left hanging until it's resolved. It's things that like weigh on your brain as you watch the show and. By the end of the show, it's like all these lead weights hanging down on these different thoughts and aspects of the show that we need to try to all keep in our head. It reminds me of Lost almost. Lost ended up being exhausting to keep track of. That's why I couldn't watch it. I tried and I just couldn't do it. Me neither. And here we go with yet another graphical match. When, you know, you brought brought Frank trying to sell another investor, one of his wife's friends, who apparently they had some sort of thing. But again, we see the eyes and immediately, kind of comically, in, in some ways, Frank, you know, covers his covers the coffee up with these stains that are on the table. Yeah, yeah. That was a cool visual moment. But ultimately, should I care? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, it, nothing – I don't feel like I have um, any thread – that I can pull on and I can get ahead of this where I can be like, oh, see, I told you this was going to happen and I have nothing. I've got absolutely nothing too. It's like speculating the ending of this show is not fun. I, last season, I remember everyone was pulling their hair out. Like who's the yellow King? What does all this mean? Who 
is behind all of this stuff. And turns out it was something that was unexpected yet also satisfying. Uh, this ep- this episode, this season, I'm not expecting the ending to be as satisfying, but I'm expecting it to be something that is, I don't want to say generic, but the only way I can see this uh, season ending is in one very specific way where Frank really fails, everything falls apart because of all of this, and he has something to redeem himself if this season were to be continued, which it probably won't. But I feel like there's going to be something there that's... Uh, I it's going to be one of the people that are close to Frank who ended up masterminding all of this. And I don't think that it's going to be as satisfying as the yellow King was last season. Yeah. And then here we have Ani getting uh, a sexual misconduct. Yeah. So I have a lot to say about this scene in terms of what, it means to be a woman in the police force. But what, what did you think? How did like, let's recap the scene. Okay. I actually thought the scene played out very interestingly and cool. So in, in, in the way that there is something going on, where is this the mayor who Mm -hmm. has, has made this happen and now we're falling apart and we get to learn. And I swear, I didn't know this. I, I swear I didn't know, but her and her, partner her usual partner hooked up once did, did i miss that no no i think that was a big twist at the end of or not the end but i think that was new information that was revealed in this episode um it, it has a lot to her character in that we now know she's someone who is very sexually driven and does not give a crap about other people's expectations or what things mean and when i look at the female characters in the show i see Frank's wife, who I think they're playing off as the annoying wah wah wife once this character, which I'm not a fan of. And I thought uh, Ani was a much better uh, representation of a strong woman until this point where – so she's stubborn about this whole uh, sexual charge filing. Um, and she does bring up a good point about the double standard where uh, she points out silence and says, you know, they're all probably cheering for Steve Mercer, right? Detective Boyfriend. And he's like, I, I'm sorry, there's nothing else I can do. And the fact of the matter here is that it is very unethical for her to be sleeping with a subordinate. But there's still something there that's, I, I think, strong about her character. It's not okay what she did. And she comes off as stubborn. They could have done something much better in terms of her stance as the main big female character in the show. Remember last year when the rumor was that it was going to be two female characters and one male character and everyone's like, yay, that's fantastic. Good going on YouTube detective. Then we get three white guys and one uh, female and it is not, they're not doing as good of a job as I thought they would in treating these female characters. Well, and then the, the consequences for this are she's going to be investigated and she is suspended, but she is still acting uh, in charge of the the state investigation. Mm-hmm. No, the way Which, the way I saw it, it was like she's suspended from this facet of her police work, but the rest of it that she's already on, she should finish. And that seems really. I mean, if if you talk about things that don't smell right. That doesn't smell right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, if you're if you're going to pull somebody off, pull somebody out. You pull them all the way out. You just don't say, "Hey, you can't come into the station," mm-hmm. because the, I mean, it just feels like something's being lined up against her. 
Yeah, no, she brings up the fact that this is probably or uh, possibly the mayor pulling string strings to uh, make sure that uh, she ends up fired somehow. We haven't seen Steve Mercer yet, but uh, we do get to see her original partner following her out of the building, say, where are you going? No, I have to be off the property. And they um, they're really bitter after uh, after this one time that they hooked up and uh, she leaves. She's upset. Um, because she suspects that he probably uh, submitted the filing. But he says, no, I didn't do that. He confirms that, or at least lies and says that he didn't do it. Uh, but he's upset that, why are you leaving? Why are you angry at me? I've been such a friend to you. And she says, mm, friends like these. And I was like, okay, that's like, you're bitter, you're angry. That's cool. But I feel like the circumstances surrounding this are so bizarre. Yeah. And then, all right, so she raises off and then cut to Paul and his jabroni partner at a <laughs> pawn shop with a watch. Mm-hmm. This confused now, me. I didn't understand why they were looking for watches. Okay. I'm, I can only think that they were looking for items that were stolen from Casper's place. Mm-hmm. And now what's interesting to me in this is that we see – um, Paul doing his basically. I'm looking at the watch. I'm looking at the Xerox copy. Mm, I'm looking at it. Mm, yep, it's the same watch. <laughs> it was just you know it was just awkward for me. It was like it, hey, it's the same watch. Mm-hmm. You, you, you that didn't have to be seven seconds. That that's one second exactly. And you know I hear next year sometime they're going to start mass producing watches that are the same make and model. But that's a long way off. I'm sure it's the exact same watch. It's got to be. It's got to be. Um, and like, do you have the tapes of that? It w- of the guy that came in? No, it was a girl. And we kind of convolutedly way find that it, it's this guy, Leto. Yeah. So the next scene that we get is um, the very true detective scene where they're all surrounding the slide projector where he's showing everyone who this person is, what they're doing and uh, why they're going to get them. They end up ending the scene with them by saying that we're going to get this guy, Lito Amarita uh, for the murder of Casper. And they say, okay, cool. That's what they're setting their sights on right now. Right. And then cut out back over to our singing girl (laughs) <laughs> out, out of nowhere, this comes up, and we've got Frank and Ray at the bar. Yeah, we get um, – first of all, I want an EP from her by the end of this. I really want like every episode to have one song, and then at the end we get an eight-song EP. <laughs> Might as well yeah. at this point. I mean it's – but see, and like this is the part where I can understand having certain key moments that are you know kind of throughout every episode. And it hasn't been through – it's been at three out of four of the episodes now. Mm-hmm. But – this has to be – and maybe this makes more sense later once this is all over with these scenes. But obviously – and then Frank Frank gives a um, you know, kind of a – kind of saying, hey, why don't you think about Ray coming and working for me and ditch the cops? I thought that was weird considering a few episodes ago he said, uh, I'll give you a promotion because you've been doing so well for me. Right. But now that was before one of his guys got killed. Exactly. Exactly. And now he's looking for people who are on his side to um, 
to maybe boost him back up into the position that he was before. He um, said, oh, I thought being club owner was behind me. He says, yeah, I thought being poor was behind me too. This is something that's really important to him. It really is. And then he says, you know, Frank, I'm not muscle. Or I'm not your muscle. Exactly. No, he says something along the lines of, like, uh, I, I, I can't do this. Uh, where he ends up uh, saying no, essentially. And it's good. Like, th- this is what we were talking about earlier, where he is not drinking beer, he's drinking water. And this might be a moment of growth for him, where he'll get out of something corrupt, and he'll start doing something more with his life. Like, in his eyes, he wants to do better, which I think is good. He's making conscious decisions to do that. And again, now we have Stan got killed, and Ray says, who killed Stan? And we have this is the the one of the long pauses that I was talking about that's very interesting visually, but I don't know how to read into it quite yet. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there was just there was almost mm, I want to say seven to maybe ten seconds of them looking at each other, and I don't know why. What I'm supposed to get from that exactly. Me neither. I'm not entirely certain why they would put this in. True Detective is always so careful about the visuals they decide to do. And that moment struck me as something where he was a little bit careless. Yes. And and here we have, you know, these little quips and quotes from Frank, you know, and we've seen this one in and heard it in the in a lot of the, the, the trailers, which was your worst self is your best self. Mm-hmm. No, that was a really good moment. I thought that, you know, that's the force pulling on him back into the uh, the whole muscle force place where he um, he's drinking beer. He wants to get better. He doesn't want to be Vince Vaughn's muscle. But turns out maybe your worst self is your best self. Maybe the downfall of uh, Ray is um, is leaving all of this. And what if. Frank is talking about himself. You know, he wanted to be, you know, the upper echelon, good guy, you know, business owner and whatnot. And he finds himself doing all these dastardly things again. And maybe that's where he excels. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. Um, This he's also changing as well. He is moving from. Uh, being up top to losing all of his money, and now he's poor, and he's trying to get all of his resources back together in more illicit ways than under the table deals. He's doing, he's moving coke, he's move, living uh, or uh, owning a bar again, and it's who knows? Maybe he's trying to look up in his uh, situation now. His worst self might have to be his best self if he's going to make this new situation for him survive. Correct, because obviously he doesn't want to be poor. Are we are we ready to talk about the, the the biggest point in this episode? All right, so we're going on the raid, the raid on the warehouse district to get Vito or Lido, Lido, and this seems really contrived. In the police station, you know, you have the police chief um, at at Vinci, you know, saying, "Is this more than enough?" Or we don't, and we didn't have tactical, but we won't need them. And he says, oh, "You sure you have? You you sure you don't have too many?" Well, I'd rather have too many than that. That that. And here we go on the run, and we have Ray doing one more look at what Lido looks like, mm-hmm. which 
I actually kind of enjoyed that a little bit because it was like, yeah, that's kind of a smart thing to like kind of good, get a good idea of who this guy is and what he looks like. No, exactly. It's – um. We we got a few looks at him, but we end up seeing him at this uh, big uh, shootout. And I think the best thing about the um, uh, the scene in the police department before they actually go out is, you know, you're right. They do say, um, "Oh man, uh, do we need all these people?" And they say, "Yeah, I think we do." And <laughs> they end up needing more people than that. And I thought that was kind of funny. In hindsight, because they're not treating the case as seriously as they should, at least the higher-ups aren't, uh, like, as seriously as um, Amy is. Well, but at the same time, this doesn't seem like, what are the stakes here? Like, this guy is that important that you have to bring that many people? It looked like, well, we're just going to do some surveillance on him, and then we'll, and then we, you know, just kind of a quick, we snap in there and and bring him out. Mm-hmm. No, they, um... Uh, turns out that is not the case. Uh, when they start walking down the street, and we see, usually they're much stealthier than this, but no, it's literally like 15 people walking in their police outfits, riot gear, and guns, walking along, and um, they're not stealthy at all. They're just kind of walking and being super uh, conspicuous, and turns out they ended up getting fired upon, and that was a very jarring moment for me. <laughs> It really was. I mean, I was just like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. Like, all of a sudden, a bunch of guys just got mowed down by one guy <laughs> with a machine gun. Yep. And I'm think, and immediately I'm saying to myself, okay, let me, let me just kind of think here. All right, so they've been set up? Or they – yeah. It, I mean, it only says set up to me, like, that they were – I mean, everybody's kind of giving each other, you know, dirty stink eyes before they leave. So I can only think it's a setup. The way I read it was that this operation it just happens to be way bigger than they expected. Almost like how last episode is just a routine walk along door to door, try to figure out where this car came from, try to figure out who's connected to Casper, interviewing hookers, things like that. And turns out there's a big chase sequence and a car explosion. Um, I feel like in the same way, they're expecting just to kind of raid the place, but no, it ends up being a massive shootout. And uh, turns out these groups of people are much more well-equipped than we think, and they're uh, way more prepared than they think. Whether or not it was a setup, I don't know. Um, I don't expect – there There hasn't been any hints to me that there's someone on the inside feeding things to um, uh, to this other group. But that would make sense if everything is as corrupt as we're uh, led to believe. I hope they unpack that a little bit next episode where maybe um, Volcoro and uh, Rachel McAdams end up talking and saying, hmm, what do you think? Like at the beginning of this episode, they had to talk about the corruption in Vinci. Maybe they'll have a similar conversation where they say, huh, you know what? It's very possible that as corrupt as this is and they want everything swept under the rug and they want like um, some big show of force uh, for the sake of the papers and the press. But in reality, this isn't going anywhere. Someone's going to be fired and the corruption is going to continue. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you though, if I'm in a shootout like this, I want Paul on my side. He's fantastic. Oh man. He was great. <laughs> I mean, I guess the time overseas paid off in the army and all of that paid off because he's a fantastic guy in this uh, situation. No, I mean, he, he plugs the, the machine gunner with a pistol, which is strong, mm -hmm. but I mean, he's tactically aware of his surroundings, which was very, very interesting to see. It was almost like, 
you know, I hate to bring this one up, but like collateral where you have, you know, just, it, it looked very tactically sound. Exactly. No, um, it, it looked re- very uh, planned, at least in his eyes. Everyone else, there was a lot of deaths on both sides. Um, like from the get-go, we get three police officers dead um, as soon as they walk up. And then um, another a whole bunch of deaths uh, as they go. And he, I was really concerned this would be another scene where somebody died. But turns out our three main detectives were good enough in order to uh, – it focuses mostly on them, but they were good enough to uh, stay alive through all of this. Yeah, but, you know, and again, even that seemed really, for lack of a better term, kind of superhero-ish. It's like, so so you're telling me that all those other cops are just horrid and they just – you know, like everybody's getting clipped except for our main three. It just seems a little odd to me, and I don't like it. Um, I get that, I, but I think that um, I, I do like how this subverted the you know Star Wars or James Bond expectation that all of the bad guys are horrible marksmen, and our main characters can plug one, two, three people as they go. Uh, Paul is fantastic at that, but the other two, they're just kind of there. We focus on them a lot, but they're far from the best shots and i feel like even more subverting that the bad guys are fantastic shots they kill a whole lot of the cops well and then it escalates even further where you have oh first of all i do want to say you you see um uh what uh, now i did get his name it's paul's partner is uh teague dixon oh and, mm-hmm. and he get and he basically gets he gets debrained um, I saw that, I mean, it, and I wasn't 100% sure it was him because, you know, he doesn't really have a head at this point. But you're right. That was him, I guess. And it was um, – that's a pretty major character dying, like relatively minor character, but he had a name at least. But see, and this is why I, 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 I can't figure out what he was doing taking pictures of Paul, and then now he's dead. Yeah, maybe someone will find those on his computer and see that there was something wrong there. That's definitely one of those uh, Chekhov's gun moments, but I don't think that, you know, he was a bad guy. Yeah. All right. So moving moving forward and, 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 and getting down to the nitty-gritty, all of a sudden this thing just explodes out onto the street. Mm-hmm. and Literally, the, there's a huge explosion. <laughs> and, and, and let's just, just – I, I, I want to just say this. It's, it was pretty uh, fake-a-rooney explosion. I was willing to suspend my disbelief mainly because okay. I wasn't expecting it, but you're right. Like, I'm sure if I go back now, I'll see, hmm, not well, as high of a then, uh, CGI budget as Game of Thrones. Right, and then all of a sudden we're throwing down, so was it a cookhouse? In the middle of this gunfire, I'm supposed to pick up on that, like it's a cookhouse? Well, who knows? I mean, at this point, it didn't look like anybody did anything to blow it up. Uh, my first instinct was maybe they blew it up themselves so that the evidence would be gone. But um, like on the one hand, that seems something very Breaking Bad to do. But on the other hand, if it was a cookhouse, they want to keep their profits and a bunch of product. But I don't know what the priority was there. It ended up being very like almost nobody survived. So who knows? Maybe and, that was the wrong decision to Frank, make. Yeah, and we see Frank coming out of the VIP area and <laughs> telling his wife to go back inside as if he – the way in which he looked said, I know something about this, but I don't think that that's the case. But again, I mean, it just seems really oddball. Like I'm going to look at the skyline and ooh, that's one of my buildings or, you know, something of that nature. I just, 
it it was disconcerting to me. Like, why even show him? He's got something to do with this, I'm sure. The way that he looked was way too uh, conspicuously. Like, he knew that building or that group or something along those lines. I, I don't entirely know. Maybe um, Ray tipped him off about this... Uh, uh, this raid at some point, who knows, but I, there's going to be some fallout for this on uh, Frank's end. No, no doubt. Okay. So, and then fallout as, as it comes down, I mean, I'm thinking to myself by the end of this, this has gone so far into botch city that somebody's losing their badge. And I can only assume come at the end of this, when we're given the, the three way stare off, <laughs> that that they all know that too, and it ends up they 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 were gonna get the guy, and I wish I spoke Spanish because I'd like to have known what the guy was saying before he he capped um his prisoner. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Very quickly, I want to point out that uh, this is another one of those true detective moments of xenophobia where uh, he's just yelling, yelling, yelling in Spanish, and then um, they don't. Uh, accept his demands or whatever he was saying. So he kills the guy and then they just kill him. Like two people shooting him simultaneously, a whole bunch. And this rings so true, especially with uh, modern, um, you know, current events that are going on. This rings very true in that, oh God, we are screwed moment. The three-way stare-off that you were talking about. They are, they are not in, they're in hot water at this point. And it's bad, uh, especially with all the stuff happening now with police brutality in you know, real life America. This is definitely something that wasn't created in a vacuum. I think that it says a lot about fear of the other and fear of people who are not, uh, you know, the dominant group, for lack of a better word. And all these people were gathered around for this rally or protest for a subway line. Mm-hmm. Now, this was, they mentioned the train line. This was, not the, this was not Frank's train line across the entire uh, state, right? I don't know. Are, is somebody trying to sandbag <laughs> the subway in order to do the train line? I don't know. But, you know, if you're going to tell me those kind of things and have a reporter, like, clearly saying something like that, that says to me, you, I'm supposed to know this, or I'm supposed to at least take this in as information for later. The news report is one of the laziest storytelling mechanics where it's just information that needs to be out there, and suddenly we're switching from one mode of audience member to the next, and now we're an audience member of a news channel inside the world. And it takes you out of the moment so much, I do not think it works, and it did not work here. Uh, we got the information at least, but, you know, I, I, I did think it was ironic later a, a car crashes into a bus, and that was one of the main, like, set pieces of this whole shootout was that there was, um, they were going into buses, they were using the bus for cover. I thought that was kind of funny, in a way. It was way too on the nose. Well, I guess I just wasn't expecting total, like, downtown Baghdad-type situation when just you know this SUV hits a bus and all of a sudden everything is 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 complete wasteland. Mm-hmm. I just I wasn't I wasn't expecting that, and it was just like I mean this just didn't seem like it seemed like overkill, and I don't know why this guy or why the, the three um, guys decided to like just unload on everybody. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like, and you know, maybe it's one of the situations where, Hey, I don't want to get caught. So if I create enough 
you know, disturbance, you know, everybody will back off. No, you're right, especially because, you know, they uh, they kill a whole bunch of civilians. Uh, there's another one of those really great visual moments where uh, you look at this guy with a machine gun on the uh, – it came from the warehouse, and he's shooting off in the distance, and it turns out he's just plugging everyone in the bus. We don't get to see anything, but we see some red splatters of blood through the window, and we hear people screaming, and it's horrifying. It's one of those things where why the hell are you killing – all of these civilians, it made no sense. It made for a really great visual of the very end where everyone was just dead. But I think that you're right. It was overkill. The only way I can see this being justified was if Frank was in on this and the train line that um, they're protesting for the sake of the bus is Frank's trans state train line, then that might all be connected and that these people are also trying to make a statement about the train versus the bus. But I feel like that's way too far fetched. I, yeah, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm not making the connection and I think that there, there, there's a connection there. Um, but I don't see it now. One aesthetic problem that I did have is this freeze frame at the end. How so? We haven't done. Well, I guess if you're going to do that, what, why do a freeze frame when and fade to black will do just fine? And you haven't done freeze frames for any of the other episodes. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. I mean, they're doing weird things in terms of, there's lots of dissolves between scenes, which felt very out of true detective style. They did that a bit, but not to the extent they do it here. Um, I honestly believe that a lot of the visual stuff they're doing is so dramatic and the music is so dramatic that it doesn't live up to the story being told. Like the story does not warrant such dramatic visuals and such dramatic music, like the boom, 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 the Hans Zimmer dark Knight style drums and all of that kind of stuff. And I don't think it, um, it warrants it. But in this case, the weird visual moment of that freeze frame that fades to black is something that I, I'm not 100% on either. All right, now, knowing what I know that you have not seen, and I'm going to make a prediction about what I saw. All right. I watched the sneak peek for episode five. And as a general rule, I just don't watch the sneak peeks. Right. And that's fine. <laughs> but I, can, I'll, I, I will justify the freeze frame based around what I think may happen. And I, I really can't I, – I, I'm not sure that, about this at all. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray does not have a mustache anymore, but he still has long hair. And we see Paul in his, um, chip uniform. Mm -hmm. I think we are either going to go backwards in time or we are going to leap forward in time. I believe that this situation we're we're going to pick up. Um, months, maybe even a year later, where there's been significant fallout from this event to where potentially maybe um, Ray is working for Frank and the team, the, the threesome has been split up. I would love absolutely nothing more. So I, the only reason I'm watching this show now is for this podcast. If they were to do that, I would be 100% hooked again. We talked about this a few episodes ago in that like, it didn't seem like they would do the big jumps forward that they did last episode or last season because 
Uh, it all takes place in modern day, and moving a year forward doesn't, or like predicting the future, does not seem like the big uh, their mo for this season. But if they jump even a year ahead, hypothetically twenty sixteen, we don't need to see the next iPhone. Like I was thinking, if we were to jump forward, it would be another fifteen years, like last year. Uh, turns out, if you move forward a year, we get those kinds of character moments like that. That would be amazing. I would love that. So, in a sense, what we could be looking at with these first four is just the foundation of the event that killed their careers or changed them completely. Because, obviously, this situation is one of those, you know, watershed moments in in anybody's life where they're going to, you know, you have that much bloodshed and that much um, just, I mean, for a guy in the military – it might not i mean that's still traumatic but you but with without even having that kind of background now you know things have definitely changed exactly uh i was going to make a parallel to first uh, season they do the exact same thing where i believe it was episode 4 or 5 where we get the big shootout in the woods that ends up costing them or not costing them the careers but ends up possibly putting their careers in jeopardy it is another place where they effed up and killed the wrong guy or killed the guy way too soon before you know legal justice could be carried out properly and they had to you know they end up faking it it ends up like uh saying so much about their characters and impacting so much more about their lives if they had done stuff right that first time in 1995 last year they wouldn't have had any of the 2012 plot and i didn't expect that to happen this year but it would parallel that in that this ends in the 1995 story last year. If this ends the quote-unquote modern story in this season and we jump ahead to the ramifications of it, maybe the guy that murdered Casper is going to be out there still. Maybe Frank is going to be a mob boss now instead of a much more respectable businessman. With uh, There you go. That would be amazing. There you go. No, I, I, and <laughs> the, here's the other, other an interesting plot device. Right. Is the fact that um, Paul's girlfriend is pregnant and he wants to marry her. So now the son comes into play. Mm. Yeah, that's right. We didn't even talk about that, but you no, know, that we didn't talk about it. Yeah, no, it was another way that he was really, really, really um, into putting his homosexual side of him behind him, where he was so gung ho about marrying this woman, and it was like, okay, fine, if you want, you know, society to validate your sexuality, go right ahead. If you want to do that, to like force you into this uh heterosexual hole but no that would be amazing if we leapt forward a year or two and his son ends up being a part of the plot i think more than anything it's going to show here he is he's you know living this life now and he he will have been living it for you know a year or two years whatever it, it might be but it will kind of we know what he was and now we're going to be looking at what they are now mm-hmm Detective Mozilak, you have given me fresh hope for this season of True Detective simply because I really want something big to happen. The big tonal shift last season was one of my favorite things about it. And if they do the same thing this year and into next episode, I would I would be in love with it. I think we need to think about one particular thing, which is that this is HBO and they're, I, I, I firmly believe that they're not going to put utter crap in front of us. Exactly. I, I mean, and I think that's where we just have to hunker in. We feel like we're pushing a punch clock right now, but I think that there's something coming for us. 
I certainly hope so. That'd be incredible. I mean, I The Leftovers is another show, but I do think that's crap. Um, but no, I, I'm really excited to see what comes along the pipeline here. If they end the season with a bang, I will most likely forgive all of the problems that this first half has. If It's, it's good. all set up. It's all set up. And we're going to look back and we're going to say, boy, we were dumb. I've said this many, many times on this podcast, but this is the only time in history where we won't be able to watch the next episode immediately. And here we are in 2015 recording our thoughts between episodes and... Here's hoping that people in the future get a better experience that we did if they binge all eight episodes in one day. There we go. They can see what it was like to take it one week at a time. Mm-hmm. Down will come. I live among you, well disguised. Hi, Erica. Hi, Stephen. Uh, what are we doing here? Well, we're talking about a Doctor Who podcast that we do together called Lazy Doctor Who. Oh, really? What's that about? (laughs) It's where you and I watch Doctor Who from the very first episode, made in 1963, up to the present day, and then we talk about it on the podcast. What? Over 800 episodes of Doctor Who from William Hartnell to Peter Capaldi, all in one sitting? No, silly. We talk about each episode as we watch them. Or maybe we talk about a couple episodes per podcast or however many we feel like watching in a particular night. How on earth are we going to fit all of these podcasts in? Well, that is the beauty of it. We record a podcast whenever we get around to it and for however long we want to talk for. We're lazy like that. So, it's a Doctor Who podcast where the hosts are kind of lazy, so... Yep, Lazy Doctor Who Find it on the Incomparable Network, on iTunes, or at LazyDoctorWho.com. Thanks for explaining that. I was feeling... Lazy? Yeah. Yeah.